Yes, it is the Christmas Eve edition of Rosie on the House. I hope this broadcast finds you all comfortably sitting at home, everything wrapped, all the shopping done, and you're patiently waiting and spending the time smiling and giggling with family and friends. That's quite the picture. <laughs> well, it, it's what you would hope for, right? It is what you hope for. We usually take the last couple broadcasts of every year and just kind of cover what we covered the most often in the past year or what you Arizona homeowners were looking for the most often. So we've kind of separated it between the two weeks. The top 10 questions we've been getting asked all year long. We're going to break that into two separate weeks. So sit back, light the fire, pour yourself a cup of eggnog or coffee and let's get started with what we can do to help inform and educate and entertain you the arizona homeowner the top five should i just name them off for you and then you can decide which one to talk about and you and roman can each pick one how's that well you know what honey the part about being prepared for the show is i already know them why don't you read them for the benefit of the listeners oh (laughs) well here you go listeners i'm cheating Let's do some remodeling. Can I remove that wall? Oh, that's a good one. Number one. That's a good one. Number two, I thought this one was really interesting. Turning your property into a short-term rental. That was a hot one. Hot topic for 2022, for sure. How about the pros and cons of buying a flipped house? Well, now, I could go on for two weeks about that. Pruning made easy is number four, what to do and what not to do. And then number five, seven features your security door should have. Very good. There's a lot of people coming to your front door right now, probably lots of Amazon oh, packages. Oh, man, How do you keep oh, that front man, door oh, safe? You know, it's dark pretty early. Yes, it is. And it's, it's dark by the time I get home. We had an Amazon guy come before I got home. Well, all you can see is headlights. You can't tell what the vehicle is. And it just sat there. And it sat there. Man and the kid had no idea who it was. Nobody's getting out. He was scared to get out because of the dogs. We're sitting on the porch looking at him. They were doing and their job. They, they were doing their job, but so many of these delivery men have spoiled them. So they're all thinking they're getting treats, you know, every oh, time a delivery hysterical. truck comes up. So they're sitting there waiting for the treats, and he's thinking they're sitting there waiting to eat him. And he eventually just shimmies his delivery van oh. over close enough out the window that he could set it on a four-wheeler quad that was just out, parked out in the front without getting out and then finally backed away and went out. But, so we actually have a tip of the week for our Amazon drivers. If you want to make friends with people in rural places with dogs, have treats, right? <laughs> Let's start with that first one about removing a load-bearing wall because it is probably one of the most popular things we are doing uh, in the remodeling company right now as well as the other remodelers I know. Homeowners pick up a ranch-style home, so common in the great state of Arizona. And when we built those ranch-style homes, we put little 6-foot, 10-inch tall sliding patio doors, and then we put a patio cover off the back, and you have to open the door, walk out to the outside edge of the patio to realize, well, look at that view of Camelback Mountain, or look at that view of the Catalinas, or look at that view of Pinnacle Peak. So... One of the things we're doing is we'll be removing those patios, uh, elevating them quite a bit, and then taking that little short patio door and putting an entire new load-bearing wall across the back, a beam across the back to carry the roof 
over that distance. And it's not unusual for that distance to go from six feet wide to 12, 16, 18, or more feet wide. And when you get that big, you've got to do some special engineering and get it done. But it's very common. It's easy to find engineers that you can retain, get on board, and uh, get that done. You then have to put the beam in place. If you go over 16 or 18 feet, your foundations need to be reinforced. So that's why a lot of times we stop at 16 or 18 feet, because the foundation that's already under that ranch-style home will carry the point load at each side of the beam, generally speaking. The other thing we do a lot is that little 7 by 11 kitchen that's next to a 10 by 12 family room. Why don't we get rid of that load-bearing wall between the two of them and create that as one big, large, open space? That is a popular uh, job to do. And again, now that will probably take foundation work. It's going to take demolition work of this concrete slab. It's going to take some excavation where the new beam will rest on the vertical post. We're going to need uh, good pier footings there. Run the post up, carry the new beam, and get rid of that wall. It can all be done, and in fact, if you want to take a look at it, you can find it at our website, rosyonhouse.com, on load-bearing walls, and it will kind of demonstrate step-by-step step how you set the house up for that. But again, we'll get to this on flipped homes later. Don't do it without a building permit and certified engineering. Yes, you can. I've never found a wall we couldn't remove. Now, how about, let's go outdoor living. Let's go to pruning. Uh, one of the more common questions we're always asked is what to do and what not to do. Uh, they could just drive by my house and see what not to do because I do most of my own pruning. And if you tuned into the Outdoor Living Hour the last two weeks, both of our guests, Jay Harper last week and then Richard Atkins, Talking Trees the week before, had a lot of great information on pruning trees, what to prune this time of year. If your deciduous trees have already lost their leaves, you know now you can. Some trees they call semi-deciduous because they never really fully lose everything we don't get cold enough for some varieties Uh, so mid-january right at the heart of the coldest part of our desert season would is ideal for that pruning if it needs it i mean that was one thing that richard stressed over and over is if it doesn't need it don't do it uh you know what is it you're trying to make the tree do and keep in mind so many of these soft bark trees in our desert native trees, they naturally grow to the ground. The, their shade canopy of their branches and their leaves shade the trunk from sunburn. So if your goal is a shade tree that's something you can walk underneath and you're trimming it up and up to keep it growing up, you know, make sure you're protecting that bark. Uh, tree wraps, uh, Eisenhower was a big fan of tree wraps. He wasn't a fan of tree paint, but I know a lot of people, including myself, use the tree bark paint. It's colored. Invisible protection. (laughs) You know, it it died to look like the bark of a tree. It was taken off of the white paint you used to see on citrus trees. Well, that paint wasn't just paint for decoration. That was protecting it from sunburn because they trimmed everything up. And finally, somebody just said, "I, I cannot stand the white invented a tree bark paint go natural tree paint and i use that on our ash trees and and our mulberry trees those are the only things that we trim up everything else we do let grow to the ground well you were talking about you know how we have to treat our native trees a little bit different 
And a perfect, you, you go to Texas, and a mesquite tree is nothing but a nuisance shrub. <laughs> and they rip them up and turn them into firewood the minute they're big enough to be ripped up and turned into firewood. <laughs> we take a mesquite and start trimming the bottom limbs, try and make it a single or multi-limb decorative tree, and it's a beautiful tree. It's a beautiful architectural landscaping statement. But that's asking a mesquite tree to do something it wasn't designed to do. It was designed <laughs> to drag its limbs on the floor. And so was the Palo Verde, really. All of them. Yeah. Uh, ironwood, um, you know, the, anything native to protect itself. Even the saguaro, the way it's ribbed, you know, that's yeah. so that the sun can't stay on any one surface for a long period of time throughout the day. And the way the, it's ribbed and then the spines on the outer side, it's its own sun protection, even even without leaf. The the natural design is sun protection. So the more wrinkly my face gets, the more sun um, protection built, you naturally have. The yes. built-in sun protection I've got. Well, <laughs> that's really encouraging. I am happy to hear that. But it's always funny for me when I talk to Texans that get here and say, I can't believe how y'all are turning weeds into landscape trees. <laughs> and, Romy, you wouldn't uh, trim citrus trees this time of year. This is their production time. You should be harvesting. If you've already got a citrus tree like limes, they're the early bloomers. Uh, you've, you, you probably haven't had a lime tree or a lime on your lime tree for a, at least two months by now. Those you can go ahead and trim. Now, you don't want to trim so much that they can't protect itself from frost mm. coming up. Um, so it might be better on a frost-sensitive uh, evergreen to wait a little bit longer. Uh, to the spring to do your trimming and really on a citrus if uh, you know outside of you know that's another one that likes to shade itself it likes to grow to the ground um, and if that's all you're doing all you really need to do is get out and clean out deadwood a, a citrus tree just naturally sheds off a lot of interior deadwood and the new sprouts if you keep those limited uh, that should help your fruit production because Citrus only produce on mature wood. So you, you get in there and you see a lot of new sprouts and you think, oh, okay, this is going to be my new harvest. Well, no, on a citrus, that's just going to take away from the mature branches mm-hmm. that are going to produce your citrus. So keep all the new buds and shoots limited and let that mature old wood grow. If it's dead wood, then cut it out. Now, while we're on citrus, this really doesn't have to do with pruning. But I don't think people understand real frost protection, and if you're going to cover it, what you really need to do to protect your citrus on frost with the with the frost cover going all the way to the ground, tied at the bottom of the and, trunk. And, and you don't want to tie it to the trunk. Okay. You, know, you, you want the cloth to touch just like where the rain would fall. You want to call it the drip okay. edge of yeah. the tree where that cloth hits the ground. If you have a couple extra inches, then put your rocks and your weights on that so that evaporation off of the ground comes up you know that it's protecting its whole canopy if you pull it down to just the trunk that airspace between the ground and that cloth is going to get really cold and it's actually going to make it frostbite more uh worse where the cloth touches the leaves underneath so you want that cloth to go straight down just let it hang naturally and then secure it at the ground There's two of the five we will cover today. Y'all stay tuned and we'll be right back. (music) 
Well, let's bring John into the conversation and see how we can help Mr. John. Good morning, John. Good morning, Rosie. Hey, yeah, it's always been a pleasure to listen to you over the decades, can I say? Wow. <laughs> uh, well, I'm not that old, but I, was, I guess I must have started young. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, we've got a fountain in the backyard. The, it's three bold wedding cake tiered. How's that for okay. a description? Okay, got it. Got it. And it's the bottom bowl, I want to say, is five or six feet across. Does that sound about right? Okay. And it's nice to have the water running in March, April, and May because you open your bedroom window and you can hear it. Absolutely. So we had a, a motor fail, and we had a handyman fix it because we couldn't get uh, any of the fountain people to come on out. Okay. It worked, but it didn't. I don't know if this is the right term, horsepower in the motor to uh, elevate the water through the top crown uh, would come out four to six inches and then kind of bubble up and then drizzle down and you get (laughs) the drips into each pond as it got to the bottom and then do it all over again. Not not the fountain ambiance you were looking for, huh? No, no. I, I mean, I could have put a hole in the roof and waited for drips. Uh, this is a pre-manufactured wedding cake styled uh, fountain. That is correct. No. Well, let me ask you this. The pump we're replacing, is it a submersible pump that sits right in the bottom of the largest uh, retention basin in the bottom? Or is yes. it a detached motor that's plumbed back to the fountain? No, it is a submersible pump. Because okay. All right. The handyman, uh, he took the time. To you disassemble it, and that's where we discovered it was not cemented together. Okay, which makes total sense if you yes. break a, a pipe. Yes, good lord, you got a mess. You, know, you got to get a jackhammer and tear it apart. Well, they make those little submersible pumps that will be. Well, Jennifer and I have a fountain in our front courtyard that stands about six feet tall, and it is a copper fountain. Uh, that we've had for, I don't know, over 20 years. And those submersible pumps ought to have the capacity and the ability to uh, run that fountain. Somehow, some way, in reassembling that unit, I'd be wondering maybe if we didn't pinch a line or if the pump wasn't secure to the hose. Uh, Maybe there are different ratings of those submersible pumps. Maybe you need to take a look at the rating you bought and up it a little bit. But that the, the little submersible, little giant pumps are, are pretty darn good, and they will move a lot of water. So my guess is we're dealing with a line obstruction or a pump maybe that we bought with uh, not quite the specifications or the horsepower we needed. Those would be the two areas I'd look at. Jennifer's got some more updating from the Builder Show. Um, you want a couple points now? Well, or you want to wait? Yeah. Okay. Well, I always feel guilty. I'm good at that. Oh. I, <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I thought, you know, you're going to the KBiz Show, and you know it's going to be a lot of smart technology. And so I wish I was more interested. I want to be. But I found out something very interesting. Even though many, many of the manufacturers are offering it because they think it's what everybody wants – Here's the stats. 30% of kitchens in the, United, in the United States and only 21% of the bathrooms have any smart technology. 
So I'm not, not I'm not quite, so odd after all. Not getting quite the consumer yeah. demand that they they were, they but think, it's coming. Yeah, it's it's inviting. trends, it's, it's appealing, coming. but people aren't there yet. And I think as the next generation comes up, it'll be more and more popular. But then we talked about you know who's going to maintain that. It's not a DIY project generally to fix smart house technology. Um, so maybe they'll do like the Tesla, where you just upload your problems in the evening before you go to bed, and the Cloud comes in and fixes your house, right? Tunes up your Tesla yeah. or tunes up your house. Or your air conditioning or, well, your, or well, your refrigerator. It might change a lot. Maybe you know? we'll eventually get there. So we we did hear that from a lot of people, that a lot of this smart technology isn't being adapted, adopted quite as quick as a lot of the manufacturers were anticipating and or hoping. But that generation is coming. Well, I think also <laughs> some of the issues are the security you know, once they figure out the security issues, I mean, you don't want somebody hacking your refrigerator to find out what your bank account looks like. <laughs> you know, it's just well, all, yeah. you know, it makes you a little vulnerable too. So they'll figure it all out, but it's it's still up and coming. All right. So technology, colors, appliances, uh, all just portions of things that we saw from the home show. Question we got is, what do I do with blistering paint on a ceiling? Uh, make sure the water's drained. Make sure you wait it out a good week or two to let everything up there dry. If the sheetrock sagged, uh, there's a trick. While it's still damp, you can screw it back up sometimes. But the danger is as you're screwing it back up, because it's damp and the paper's wet, you're going to take that screw and put it all the way through the sheetrock. So take a screw and put a, a washer on it. And screw the sheetrock back up just to where the washer moves the sheetrock back up to its plain level position and allow it to dry in that position. It'll dry straight again. Once you've got that done, then you need to get a product called Kills or a similar product, K-I-L-Z. And that water will have left a stain on the sheetrock. Say, let's say that stain's the size of a basketball. You'll take Kills and spray that area twice or three times the size of the basketball, let that kills dry, and then paint the whole ceiling. There's just a couple steps for you to take if you experience a roof leak in your house. I'm Christine, general contractor, designer, owner of BC Renovations. Happy holidays from Rosie on the House. Good morning, all y'all. Welcome back to Rosie on the House. We're going to be talking about the top blogs again. All these articles are on the website, and you can find all this really great information that we've gathered for you. So what else do you guys want to cover? How about, Rosie, seven features your security door should have? The first thing you all need to know when you're talking home security is that the great majority of all break-ins occur through the front door. And they generally occur in the middle of the afternoon. So when you're starting to assess the current situation, the security situation at your home, I would tell you that a good security door mounted to the front of your front door is probably one of the highest returns on investment you can get for securing your home. If I'm driving through a neighborhood and I'm a crook. I'm a bad guy. I want whatever's in your house. The first thing I'm going to look for is for a home 
that doesn't have a security door because I'm going to go in the front door. And if your architectural style is such that the front door is hidden from view, it's back under a porta cachere, the neighbors can't see it, traffic on the front road, the street can't see it. That, for me, is a very highly likely target because I can probably get in that front door before anybody can see me. If I have to go through two doors, I literally just scratch your address off my hit list. That's too much trouble. So a security, a good security door is a great asset for all of you. You can open the front door so much of the year in Arizona and let the draft blow through and still be secure. But what you'd want to look for is you want to make sure you've got a good heavy door. And you want to make sure you've got a good deadbolt, a one-inch throw deadbolt at the least. And you want that deadbolt to be anchored into a steel frame, not the wood frame of your door, your, your front door. So good steel, a good deadbolt, and I would tell you that that needs to be a double-cylinder deadbolt, although I know the fire chiefs don't like that. Double-cylinder deadbolt means you, means you need a key to get in it and you need a key to get out of it. Uh, but for security, that's going to be the best you can do. All those things considered, make sure it's mounted in a way that the hinges can't be removed. Generally, they're welded to the frame. They're welded to the door. Make sure the pins that hold the hinges together can't be removed. And at that point, you've got something that's going to quadruple the amount of time it's going to take me, the criminal, to get in your house. For all of those reasons, a good security door is going to stop the great majority of front door break-ins, which, like I said, happen to be the most common form of break-in coast to coast. In this time of year, it's, sometimes it's just what you have on your porch that they're after. So things you can do, like next door. Uh, I saw I saw that big screen TV the neighbor got. Yeah. And, and it's the same one I've been wanting. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't you know? There's all kinds of we've all kinds of things you can do too to protect your front porch. But that chop those boxes up and don't leave them out on display bragging to your neighbor all the things you got all Santa all the great things Santa Claus brought yeah. you. So think that through. So the other thing is flipped homes. Romy, how many times have you heard me get on that soapbox? Yeah, and it's been a while uh, just because that trend died with the market bust of 08, which I think was was probably a the, the bust wasn't a good thing, but the <laughs> the bust in flipped homes, the, the stop in the chopped, sloppy flipped homes ending was a good thing. And in many cases, it drove the prices down so far. That's when the in- investors and the flippers jumped in. And uh, they put lipstick on a pig, relisted it for sale, and, and made considerable money. But I always tell if, if any of you newcomers to Arizona, buy whatever home you're buying. If it's a used home, not a brand-new home with a, by a builder. If it's an existing home you're buying from another homeowner, I would tell you, and I would encourage you aggressively, make sure that home, when you're shopping, is as in as close original condition as possible. The more additions and the more things they've slapped on it, the more headaches you're probably going to have to deal with. So if I could be king for a day, I would make it a law 
that every real estate transaction had to go to the permitting office and do, and and show what permits have been pulled on that house the last 10, 15, 20 years. Because if you could tell that that back patio got converted into a sunroom and there was no permit pulled, you would know right then and there, okay, there's a good chance a good part of that project is not to code. And it's certainly not up to snuff because the building inspectors never got there to look at it to make sure all of the things that need to be done to turn a back patio into living space and that sunroom, the overflowing living room, there's a lot of things that need to be done to be code compliant. And so aren't I'm, you finding, too, that the permits, that, that's more of an issue now as far as permits not being pulled, and then you go to get a new one, and they make you backtrack to where it should have been before, so then you have double trouble, double expense, trying to bring things up to code, and then getting done what you want to have we, done. We, at our remodeling company, we've literally had to tell the homeowner who have bought one of these flipped homes, I'm sorry, but the city you're in, we've submitted for a permit. They know the work wasn't done, and we're going to have to demolish a good part of it for their inspectors to come in and inspect it before we can even start the work you want done. But many investors from out of town would come in. They'd scoop these homes up for 50 cents on a dollar. They'd, like I say, put lipstick on a pig. They would spend a few bucks, uh, unlicensed uh, help, uh, unlicensed contractors, no building permit, put it back up for sale, and it would sell before anybody knew to even ask the questions. And the flipped homes that were being picked up in 1920, 21, were, uh, generally speaking, could have held the potential of being a major nightmare. Second major nightmare that kind of came to the news front? The uh, vacation rentals. S- STRs. STR? Short-term rentals. Short-term rentals. VRBO. Those Air- have really raised Air- a lot Air-B-M-B. of concern, haven't they? It's sure gotten out of hand. Well, there were, there were neighborhoods in Arizona where the homeowners were raising cane over what became party houses. An empty house, four-bedroom, they, they'd rent it the weekend for to five families or, how, or, or a fraternity. <laughs> I didn't realize we have them in our neighborhood, but I figured out how to spot them. When you see somebody standing outside a home with a suitcase, that means they've been there for the night and they're waiting for their Uber ride. And then you start to notice there's nobody home the rest of the days. You know, so there's, there's, they're around. That's maybe you don't even see them. Maybe they're not a party house, but maybe they're just flipping over, you know, changing occupants a lot. Well, certain cities in Arizona went to the state legislature and said, you guys have got to give us some weapon, uh, some legislation, some laws, some guidelines that where we can start protecting our neighborhoods from becoming um, throw-down neighborhoods, throw-down shacks. And uh, the legislature, just in the past year, did give cities some guidelines. Um, If you are registered as a VRBO, and I keep saying VRBO, which probably isn't fair, Airbnb, whatever, whichever platform you use, let's just go back to short-term rentals. If you have a short-term rental, uh, you have to register now with your city, and they have to have a 24-hour active contact name and phone number information. And at the point your property is responsible for three reports 
to the law enforcement of the area. Uh, they, they now have the power to limit your ability to put it back on the market as a short-term rental. So that's just one of the things. HOAs have been begging for it for years. Well, I like it. <laughs> they have some regulation after waking up one night to helicopters above and gunshots. And, and, and loud music and noise and, and illicit activity going on. It's not, it's, when you've got one in the neighborhood that's earned a reputation as being a landing place for that kind of activity, that word spreads fast amongst that crowd. Um, and boy, once the word is spread amongst that crowd, uh, the rest of the neighborhood uh, pays the price. It's very unfortunate. So there are short-term rentals kind of got addressed. A lot of HOAs and a lot of cities were unhappy that the state legislature didn't give them more teeth in the law. But uh, I think everyone is happy that at least we got to the first step of trying to control these. So those are, this hour, we just covered the five most popular blogs that y'all have been reaching out to us at Rosie on the House about. It's the, let's do some remodeling. Can that load-bearing wall be removed? It's pruning made easy. How many newcomers are coming here? And like you say, Roman, they have no idea how to treat... A, a Texan moves here, and the first thing he does is go out there and chop the mesquite tree down, burn it up in the fireplace. <laughs> Which isn't bad. It's not a bad burning <laughs> wood. No, yeah. it's a great wood. It's a great wood. Uh, and then we talked about uh, security doors and what you would want done uh, what kind of how, how are you going to shop for a security door? And I will say this: um, I would opt to have my security door professionally mounted with non-removable bolts or screws as well. Uh, and a good one is going to cost you more than a few hundred bucks. A good one is going to be closer to a couple or a few thousand dollars, unless you go into decorative artwork. Then it's going to go significantly higher than that. Then we talked about the pros and the cons of flipped homes, and um, I've, I've certainly worn out my soapbox in that category. And all of these articles, uh, we're, we're not covering them in detail this hour. It was not our intent. It was our intent to bring them to your attention as to what's out there, what's in our information base, what's on our website and all of these topics are covered in much greater depth in links contained there on the Internet machine. <laughs> <laughs> and if you get our weekly newsletter, you'll find the links in there. And within the article, you can click through to each of those articles and get the information you need. Good morning, Cindy, calling from Scottsdale. Hi, good morning. I have a ranch home, an older home, and in the laundry room, which is pretty big, I would like to add a macerating toilet, and the electric and plumbing for the washer and dryer is would be only like four or five feet away. Do you think that could be a smart thing or not? Well, um, the drain we run to your laundry room is smaller than the drain that we run to your toilet. Now, you ought to call, um, I would start with City of Scottsdale and let them know what you want to do um, and see what their building code requirement is for a macerating toilet if, in fact, you can discharge that into 
a smaller than a three-inch drain because a toilet drain needs to be three inches. I haven't installed a macerating toilet in Scottsdale. We did once for a cabin up on the Mogollon Rim. And we've installed a lot of macerating pumps for hillside homes that have to pump their sewer up over a hill to get into the city sewer system. But I don't have the experience of installing a single macerating pump on a smaller than a three-inch line in the city of Scottsdale. Let's do a little bit more investigation before we do, because if Scottsdale says no, we'll have to go find that three-inch line, which is probably somewhere's out in the front or back of the yard. You could grab it, bring it into that laundry room, and uh, have it done absolutely right and correct. So, I'm going to ask a dumb question. Okay, What's please, a macerating toilet? Think think of a toilet with a built-in blender. No, no. Think, Don't think too hard. No, no. Think of a toilet with a built-in garbage disposal. Okay. All right. All right. It it, it composts it all. It's it all doesn't compost all. it. It just breaks it all down into fluid enough. We it, you have to use it a lot when you when you're trying to force feed a sewer line. Macerating, Macerating toilet. toilet. We are learning <laughs> so much today. You're helping my crossword Lots of puzzle. Yeah. Right how about that? Gary, calling from Tucson. Good morning. Uh, Good morning. Um, I had a roof replaced about four years ago, and the original roof that they replaced had two layers of road roofing on it, and in some places it actually had three layers, and one layer was 30 years old and one was 15, and what they did was half of the roof, they did not remove that road roofing. They just put felt over it. It's a flat roof. I was wondering, is that going to cause a problem later on, or... uh, do you think that'll be okay? Um, in, inherently, um, I would I would need to know a bit more, but inherently, I'm not worried about it. It did it did it bond well. You're not seeing any of it blistering back up. You're not having any leak problem. Well, it's, it, it, it's 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 uneven, so there are some rather deep uh, pooling because it uh, it what they did was. There's two skylights, and so the skylights are almost touching the roof now because it's so thick from yes. the previous roof and, and from this. And uh, I'm just wondering if it's going to, you know, five years from now cause any problems. or. Well, i tell you what I'll do, Gary. Um, uh, one of our certified roofers down in Tucson is West Coast Roofing. One of their estimators is named James. And he's going to come out and take a look at that and give his expert opinion. And then I'm going to buy James and his wife a nice supper at a good restaurant in Tucson. And then we'll all call it even. You'll have a good third-party objective expert analysis. James and Susan will get a nice dinner out of the deal. And we'll all live happily ever after. Popular questions we had asked was, uh, will a fresh paint job cover the smell of cigarette smoke inside this house I bought. Probably not. <laughs> that smell permeates everything, the carpet, the upholstery. What, whatever top surface is on there, furniture, uh, depending on what kind of countertops, any tile grout. So it takes a lot more than that. We have a great article at rosyonthehouse.com. Uh, that talks through everything and the cleaning that you'll want to do with trisodium phosphate. Um, you can apply kills primer over the top surface before you paint, and that'll help lock it in. Um, 
when you're done scrubbing, even putting air purifiers in there. So it's a it's a pretty big job. The best way is just that shouldn't be done indoors. Um, <laughs> for for that reason, it, it it's a very expensive process getting that removed. We've got Ken next on the line. Wants to talk about water filtration. Ken, welcome. Hey guys, how's it going? Yeah, I got a quick question. My uh, water softening unit on my house went out, and I've been thinking on my side to rip that out. I've also got a reverse osmosis under the sink that needs to be uh, re, you know, the filter switched out once a year. And I'm leaning towards a whole house water filter system. And my wife's convinced we need to stick with a water softening unit. And I guess it's kind of personal preference, but can you guide me? I mean, I know water softeners are better for pipes typically, correct? It's, it, it takes the hard minerals out of the water. So it's not only better for the pipes, but it's better uh, for your laundry, your clothes. It's better for your skin when you're taking a shower. I mean, it's, it, it's anything you use water for, it's better for. So it's a something we absolutely uh, encourage all homeowners to invest in is a whole house water uh, softener. And then with the RO filter that you put underneath the kitchen sink, that's then your purified drinking water. You you don't want to drink RO water. I mean, there's, I'm, oh, I'm sorry, yeah. uh, softened water. Uh, there's nothing necessarily really wrong with it. It just kind of leaves a, in a different taste. So then the RO brings it perfectly down to H2O. 